Welcome to the Werner Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the show, we have two comics creators talking about current and future projects. The first is Rob Walton, who was the creator of the 90s black and white book Ragmop. There's a new edition of Ragmop that is currently being kickstarted, a second volume to follow the original series from the 90s. You can find more information about that Kickstarter, which is currently ongoing uh, in the pod and in the show notes. The other guest is Phil Hester, who is going to talk about his long-awaited omnibus for his book, The Wretch. We're going to talk about the history of that creation, its various publishing histories, its design. We're also going to talk about why Phil loves Ragman so much and the perils of collecting original comics art. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. One of my favorite indie comics of the 1990s was Rob Walton's Ragmop, a blend of political satire, science fiction, and classic Warner Brothers-style cartoons. I'm happy to say that Ragmop is returning with a currently ongoing Kickstarter project to print a new graphic novel called Ragmop, The World Needs Laughter. And I'm very happy to say that Rob is joining us on the pod to talk about this new book. So, how's it going, Rob? How you doing? <laughs> Um, I'm doing fine. Uh, other than publishing on Kickstarter, <laughs> I'm doing fine. It, it's, a, it's a new world for sure. Yeah, so uh, as we record this on October 1st, um, you the book is about two-thirds of the way funded, and you have about two weeks to go. Is that about right? That's, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we're, we're just at about 67% as far as I know. And uh, and I think the Kickstarter campaign goes for um, another two weeks. I think it wraps up on the 14th of October. Okay. Yeah, it seems like from the people that I know that have done them and some of the people that have been on the show to talk about them, it seems like there's always like an initial flood and then a trickle and then a jump and then another trickle and then like a big jump at the end. So... Uh, I would hope that being two thirds of the way through already is will you know will lead you with a good finish at the end. Well, yeah, I'm hoping so. I mean, I'm not panicking at all because um, <clears throat> uh, one, it is following this the trends as, as you said. Um, you know, the fir- there's a big first week and then things flatline for a bit and then there's a big finish. Um, and, and also, I mean, Kickstarter isn't the, the, the be all and the end all, uh, if, you know, if, if the Kickstarter campaign fails to be funded, um, I can still get books to people, you know, they can just order them to me through PayPal and I'll set up a, um, a kind of, a, 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 an e-store where they can order the books and I'll just print to order. So, um, I plan on fulfilling everybody's orders regardless. That's good, and the graphic novel is collecting stuff that was previously online a couple years ago, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. I originally had a um, a handshake with uh, Vault Comics, and I produced the um, the first draft of the graphic novel, which ran online in in 2017. 
but unfortunately, by the time 2019 rolled around, the uh, I, I, I was still just operating on a handshake, uh, and it was it was time to take uh, the book back and just you know just do it myself. And so what I did was um, I, I left the story set in 2017 because I didn't want to update it. It's not no, it's, it's set in 2017 uh, because it involves the the Kirby Centennial is. Um, is, is throughout the book uh, since it was 2017. And uh, so I left it there, but I did do a fresh polish of the whole graphic novel, and I added about an extra, somewhere around, the, somewhere around another 20 pages of, uh, of fresh material uh, just to kind of put my individual stamp on it and to uh, separate it from what Vault had published online. That's cool. And is it going to be... Black and white, because I noticed you sent me uh, a PDF, and I noticed like the PDF has spot color. It's black and white with a couple pages of color. Is that how it's going to be printed? Yeah, yeah, that's going to be how it's going to be printed. There's going to be a, I, did, I, I fooled around with some tones, um, but I left those color pops in there uh, for for the uh, for the gross effects like uh, vomit, blood, and pus. Uh, so I wanted the vomit, blood, and pus to remain in color. Um, uh, just uh, uh, I, I just thought it, it worked. Right. Um, and the the original series that we were talking about uh, was published in the 90s, and I know that you collected that in a trade like about 10 years ago or so. Is that trade still in print, or, or uh, uh, what's, no, what's its no, status? <clears throat> the trade is long out of print. I only did one um, one one print run of it, but I did do a healthy uh, overrun. Um, I was anticipating uh, some reorders, which never materialized. So I have plenty of uh, volume one, um, which is also available as part of the Kickstarter. If you haven't read Ragmop, uh, you can get both volumes on Kickstarter. That's yeah, that's good. I was going to say, um, like I said, I was. I was a big fan of the book. Uh, when I read it, we were just talking before we started, and I don't remember uh, when I started reading because you had self-published a few issues of it, and then it went to Image when, um, in sort of like, I want to say like 96, 97, 98, yeah, something, somewhere yeah, around yeah, there. Was, yeah, 97, I think it was. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah the Image, uh, <laughs> Jim Valentino's portion of Image um, acquired a lot of uh, black and white indie books and gave gave them like uh, a great deal of exposure because I know um, Xander Cannon, who now does Kaiju Max, was doing Replacement God. That's at, right. Yeah. At the, at the time, and that's one of the books that went to Image, and I know Jimmy Robertson went to Image. I mean, there was it was a it was a a lot of people and a lot of really great books that. You know, yeah, got Bone a big, was there got for a big, several yeah, years as well. Yeah, and got a big boost in the arm from you know, moving from you know someone who used to work in a, in a comic store. You know, when you move from the back of the catalog to the front of the catalog, you know it helps it helps greatly for for somebody that's a small press publisher. Uh, yeah, it was a great and and I, I nearly blew it the first time uh, with with Jim because I <clears throat> I, I don't have very good filters sometimes. And um, I made one or two jokes that he didn't appreciate. 
he canceled his offer to me. So I, I quickly, um, I quickly uh, apologized profusely, um, and and he, uh, he he graciously accepted my apology, and uh, we published the uh, two issues, uh, three issues. No, we did two issues, and then I did one wrap-up issue. So two issues were with with um, with Image. And what was nice about Image, though, it gave the book enough exposure that um, somebody sent me a screen cap from Chasing Amy because there's a scene in there where um, Ben Affleck is leaning against a rack of comic books, and right next to his right elbow is the Image issue number one of Ragmop. So that would not have happened had I not uh, had that uh, offer not been extended to me. Yeah, and, and I, as I said, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, and, and as I said, also, um, it's it's always important for me to say that, as we were ta- as I mentioned before, that um, without uh, those two images, I image issues that I did, um, thanks to Jim Valentino, I would not have had enough uh, material on hand to have actually finished the graphic novel when I did do the finish the graphic novel in 2006. So I always thank Jim uh, Valentino profusely for that. Yeah, and I guess we haven't actually said this yet to like actually talk about what the, the book's about. But like I said in the intro, it's <laughs> it's well, it's I, as I'm sure you can uh, appreciate. Sometimes it's one of those sort of high concept things that it's it's a lot of it's like this and this and this and this, and so it's part political satire, it's science fiction, it's sort of classic sort of slapstick comedy classic cartoons like i always say it's sort of it's like part uh part marx brothers part feinstein theater part douglas adams part chuck jones tex avery (laughs) i'm sure these are these are all the things that i'm sure you've heard over time when people talk to you about the book it's all of these and the above and and the other thing it is too is uh, at least the the volume one is definitely um a, a bit of a love letter to Silver Age Marvel Comics. Uh, I call a lot of material, particularly from Jack Kirby, uh, and refashion it uh, in, within the context uh, of Ragbop, where the Fantastic Four becomes the, quotor, the, uh, the covert quartet, um, these four CIA agents who have been working through conspiratorial uh, covert action uh, throughout the the rag mop world and um, the, the 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 ultimate origin of of Alice Hawkins as Thrill Kitten uh, parallels the um, uh, the origin of the Red Skull uh, and and, and uh, there, there's appearances of the Pope dresses like Odin in one uh, in in one panel and you know there's all sorts of little nods to to Marvel comics throughout. Uh, because it was my one chance to kind of write a Marvel-style comic, so at the base of this of this comedy and why it's it works for people, um, and why it works for me personally is that it is a straightforward action adventure story like you would read in any Marvel comic book. Uh, but layered on top of that, and layered throughout that, it becomes a tapestry of all these other things that we've uh, that we've mentioned in terms of. Um, uh, 20th century animation, Hanna-Barbera, television, uh, political economy, uh, Noam Chomsky, and all these names that you could mention. Yeah, because it's sort of interesting that our main character 
uh, Alice that you mentioned sort of starts the book as, I mean, she's our protagonist, but she wants to be a supervillain. And it's, you know, she's, and she's the character we're rooting for, I guess, her and, uh, again, when you started explaining this, it sounds really funny, but you have, you have three talking dinosaurs who I guess are probably also sort of our main, <laughs> our main good guys in the book. Yeah, they, they're there for the comic relief, of course. Yeah. Um, and they get much dumber in the, in, in the, in volume two. Uh, they're still kind of serious and naturalistic in the first volume. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one of the things about Ragmop also is that it was the antithesis of Cerebus in the 1990s. It was this liberal, progressive-leaning comic book um, that engaged in feminism and social justice, which were slightly different than, than certainly different than what social justice is nowadays in 2019 and i don't fully quite understand what social justice is in 2019 i do know what it was in in uh, 1994 uh and feminism as as well and when i, I reread ragmop now I'm, I'm rather shocked at uh how current it is um and how correct my reading was back in in the in the 1990s i was gonna say there are certain characters who definitely do not seem out of place in 2019 whether it's the sort of shady politicians or the mad scientists or uh you know the over-the-top uh religious figures it's like you know those are sort of timeless characters and, you know it's it's funny yeah that it's like 20 years ago but you know some things you know haven't changed since then and really haven't changed for you know cuz i mean there's a lot of history in there too and it's like you know this you know talking about stuff that went on in the new deal it's like no different than yeah. stuff that went on in the 60s that went on in the 90s that goes on today so yeah one of the things that's caught on today um but for different reasons uh is um back in the 1990s there was a you know after the berlin wall fell Capitalism declared um, victory in the economic world, and uh, corporations kind of went like crazy, like kids in a candy shop. And uh, there was a lot of corporate malfeasance and questionable actions, and um, a lot of people were, were hurt very badly economically um, through downsizing and other other corporate. Uh, trends of the of the 1990s and i'm i'm a white dude and i write about white collar crime because that's my world i, I understand white collar crime and and so the, my corporate villains who are generally white guys as well uh have now come under e, uh, even more disfavor uh in 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 the 2010s and when i read com comments on goodreads you know people are picking up on this um and uh, and and so it's they're they're very fashionable villains for for 2019 uh which they weren't actually in in the in the 1990s when the comic book uh industry was much more conservative than it than it is now um uh, generally speaking um and there was a lot of hate for ragmop <laughs> there was a lot of hate for cerebus and there was a lot of hate for ragmop too it was, it was very odd because of its uh, because of its uh, left leaning politics, 
Yeah, I just remember at the time, because I had, I think right around the time it came out, I had finished uh, finished graduate school, and I studied, like, metatext and referentiality. So this is the kind of book that, you know, was, like, so totally in my wheelhouse, because not only were there so many references, there were so many divergent references between, you know, again, classic Warner Brothers cartoons on the same page where you've got stuff about, you know, f- fractal physics and, yeah. you know, Adam Smith and all this stuff. And, you know, that's that was like so, so totally in my wheelhouse. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that I and like I, I was rereading the trade the last couple of days before we did this. And like I was pleasantly surprised how many things I actually remembered from the book, even though. I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I probably read it when I got the trade, you know, 10 years ago Mm -hmm. or whatever, because it's certainly a lot easier to find one trade than finding, you know, issues in dozens and dozens of comic boxes. But, yeah, I was pleasantly pleased of, like, how many things I remembered. You know, certainly the, you know, the crazy mad scientist who likes to lobotomize people is like... (laughs) You know, a character that stuck with me for a while because it's, you know, he's he's such a great bad guy and he has such a great visual, too. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, for your listeners, um, if we want to just kind of back up, one of the reasons why I became interested in feminism as as part of Ragmop was, one, because I had a female protagonist and I figured, well, if she's going to be female, you know, let's take a look at feminism in comics. Uh, because this was at the same time, uh, coming out of the early part of the 1990s, when you had all these in- incredible exaggerated distortions of female anatomy coming mostly out of the image books, um, and, and some of the in, the in the Marvel books preceding the image books as well. Um, and there was kind of a backlash against that. So I made sure that my protagonist was rather, you know, properly proportioned. She wasn't exactly beautiful. She's got a big nose and, um, you know, she's kind of heavy around the hips a little bit. Uh, uh, and, and, um, and so psychiatry was, an, was also an important part of the feminist uh, story uh, because one of the reasons, one of the motivations of um, Professor, uh, uh, what's his name, Friedman? Yeah, yeah, Lifton Friedman. Yeah, Lifton Friedman, the toxic psychiatrist. Uh, the, the lobotomies in, you know, uh, the, the quote, which is actually a real quote, um, where he, he talks about how lobotomies make women good housewives. I mean, it's, you know, to, to placate uh, dissent uh, and, and contrarism from, um, from, from, the, from the female population in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so that's where that character kind of evolved from. He evolved also out of the feminist history. Uh, but he does make a great protagonist, um, yes, and he spends the whole 400 pages trying to lobotomize uh, uh, Alice to make her more docile and uh, compliant. Yeah, because I think, I think in his first appearance in the book, he's he's at some Washington cocktail party, and there's some sort of – feminist senator or judge or something like that's that right. and he like and she's she's like completely appalled by him and he just comes up and like whack whack gives a little about him and then she's like 
oh, let's go and make some cookies or something to that effect. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, yes. Uh, I'll just slip into the kitchen and, and fix you something to eat. Oh, there's the quote there. Men don't fare so well, but women make good housewives. That's an actual quote um, from uh, Lifton Friedman, um, uh, or the character I based Lifton Friedman on. Uh, he also experimented on Portuguese. Uh, for, he had a lot of Portuguese mental patients to practice lobotomies on. And when he was criticized for using Portuguese, his quip was, oh, pshaw, there's plenty of Portuguese. He was quite a character, to say the least, uh, the, the real-life counterpart. Uh, so uh, you know, a lot of uh, the dialogue in Ragbob actually does come from quotes from psychiatry and politicians, uh, because you can't make that stuff up. You know, I, I, I did copious amounts of uh, research on it, as the bibliography at the back uh, will attest to. Uh, and, you know, especially, you know, quotes from Dan Quayle, you can't write that stuff, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like, no, keep talking, Dan, this stuff's gold, I can't write fast enough. <laughs> Asteroids are our friends, you know. <laughs> yeah, and there's certainly, you know, and there's your, your prototypical sort of New World Order secret society in there, and of course, the mid-90s are not, you know, far removed from, from Bush 1. Be, you know, being president, and you know, there's a guy who was in the Skull and Bone Society in Yale and director of the CIA. So yes, yes, uh, the, the cryptocracy is very evident in Ragmop, and it evolves into the second um, into the second volume. I was very happy actually when I came across the reptilians. Um, who are the ultimate uh, villains in, in Ragmop. Uh, the reptilians have been around for a long time, and I read about them just after I finished, uh, when, when I called it quits, and I kind of went back to animation uh, in the late 90s. Um, that's when I first read about the reptilians. And, and again, it was just like, oh, you know, slow down, this is gold. You know? <laughs> this, was, this is the missing piece of the puzzle that I, I, that I need to finish the book. And so when I did come back to finish the book, I, I, I weaved the reptilian uh, narrative uh, in from the very beginning again um, to work it through. Um, because they are kind of the ultimate um, metaphor for complete authoritarian uh, centralized uh, rule of the human species, uh, which is also represented by secret societies and the elite and the 1% and however you want to define, um, define these groups. And of course, reptilian bad guys make a nice counterpart to your friendly talking dinosaurs. Yes, they do. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, they, they 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 work well. They just work well visually, um, and you can and they can encompass um, a, a, you know various different philosophies. Um, uh, they're they're very good to work. They're very um, they're very fertile characters. Um, and I had a, a great deal of fun going back in the second volume. Um, I actually do go back to the, uh, the the planet of Draco, where they come from, and uh, you meet the larger society uh, as the because the, the the second volume is it's a planned bridge to the to the grand finale, and so that is set up in the second volume. 
Um, and uh, we have new villains and obviously new plots and things like that. Same old dinosaurs. Um, but um, I, I, I want to, uh, again, use the, 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 the reptilians in a way to uh, enlarge upon uh, what is an even kind of a, a darker political climate uh, that we're going into in the 2020s. Right. Um, before we go, I had I do have one non ragmop related question that I just that I've always wondered about, and that is, how did you end up writing the the Grendel story? Um, I, I ended up writing the Grendel story um, <clears throat> because of a very early. Um, my, my first comic book was Pork Night, which was published by the Silver Snail Comic Shop here in Toronto, and. Um, and and that was a a take on um on on Frank Miller's uh, Dark Knight. Um, I'll say for for people that for people that were not around back then um the early 80s black and white boom had an amazing number of uh funny animal parody books which yes. which is funny because that's sort of where the tur- the turtles were sort of a sort of more serious especially the early turtles were a more serious uh offshoot of like the funny animal parody book because you know if you you know if you take a step back and look at the turtle stuff there's a lot of wink wink nudge nudge to like frank miller's daredevil and also ronin right yeah and ronin but then you had so after the success of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You had, you know, the adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters. <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> and then you, you know, and you had Fish Police, and yeah. there were it was there was an amazing number of those things. And so, yeah, doing a funny animal Dark Knight parody makes complete sense in the context of the times. Yes, it does. Yeah, and, and and the difference between the black and white of the '80s and the black and white of the '90s is that the black and white of the '80s um, was the realization of fans that all they needed to to be a publisher was money to pay a printer, and so suddenly you had this glut of of publishing for everybody that could get two cents together to pay a pub, to pay a printer uh, was publishing their their little vanity books, um, and people were buying them in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, because everybody was trying to find the next Cerebus. And uh, well, I guess Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles probably was the next Cerebus and then Bone. Uh, but the difference, in, then in the 1990s, though, um, the, the actual professional artists took over the black and white market, the Steve Bissett's and the Xander Cannons and, and the Rick Veach's. Um, and uh, and myself to some extent, um, and and of course um, uh, Bone, um, and, and so that was that was kind of the main difference. But going back, so so I did Pork Night, and that led to me doing a little series called Bloodlines. And Bloodlines, uh, Matt Wagner really liked Bloodlines. Uh, again, it was an urban fantasy, uh, very steeped in um, in Flemish artwork by Bruegel and Bosch. Um, it was a gang war, but it was it was you know it was like Tolkien set in a modern city, basically. Uh, but anyways, Matt Wagner really liked that, 
and 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 uh, so when I met him in Toronto, he invited me to do Grendel Tales. Uh, it was put on hiatus for five years, and then in 1993 or something, I, I got a phone call out of the blue. Um, saying, oh, we're doing Grendel Tales from Diana Schutz, and uh, you know Matt still wants you to do yours. Uh, so that's how I, that's how that came about. And that's still in the, the, all that Grendel stuffs. I think either in print or back in print now. I believe uh, they did an they did an omnibus. I think in 2018 they did the omnibus. Uh, so it's in there. And my story is it's interesting because. Uh, I guess like like my work in general, people either love it or they really hate it. There, you know, there, there's no kind of middle ground uh, with with my work. And so I've read reviews where people say that Grendel Tales is, uh, uh, or the Devil's Hammer is the absolute best Grendel Tales they've read, and it freaked them out, and they're still having nightmares. And then other people say that ah, was the worst and was poorly drawn, and you know. It was a whole lot of nothing. Well, it was interesting because, you know, that Matt was having a lot of sort of up-and-coming or relatively unknown people at the time do Grendel Tales because I know, I think, like, around that time is when Uh-oh. is when James Robinson, I think James Robinson and Teddy Christensen did. That's right. Yeah, did they theirs. did that. So yeah, That's the, right. and, they did theirs, and then I did mine, and and then Steve Siegel and um, Paul Grist uh, did the one after me, uh, and and then the um, oh I'm gonna I'm gonna forget their names the Eastern European guys the two guys uh, did theirs and Dave Cooper did theirs a couple Canadians really talented Canadians um, uh, Dale McEwen I think was in there being uh, colored by. Um, Dave Cooper, um, yeah, there's a lot of really good, you know, names that have gone on, uh, either not necessarily in comics, but certainly in the fine art world. Uh, Dave Cooper's work is is bought by uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, and it was part of his traveling show. I mean, it's, he does he does amazing work, but just not in comics anymore. Uh, yeah, and they all came out of Grendel Tales. It was a great uh, it was a great chance for people. Uh, to springboard into a you know a potential next step. Unfortunately, my next step didn't didn't develop, uh, which is why I ended up doing Ragmop. Uh, because I was pitching to uh, DC and Marvel. Uh, I was also a Marvel tryout finalist back in '87 or something. So I was pitching Marvel all sorts of stuff. Um, but I, co- I couldn't sell I couldn't sell to either DC or so I just ended up doing Ragmop. Great, Rob. I want to thank you very much for doing the show today. As we as we've said all along, the Ragmop Kickstarter is as we record uh, two thirds funded, and you have uh, two or so weeks left to go. So I want to thank you for doing the show and really wish you the best of luck getting the rest of it done. Well, thank you very much, and uh, you know I can't do it without the uh, without the people out there. Um, and like I say, one way or the other, whether Kickstarter is successful or not successful, I'll, I'm, I'm going to get this book into people's hands and I'm going to make it available uh, to people because I've read it many times and it's a good, <laughs> I certainly have a good laugh. Um, but thank you very much. It was really nice chatting with you and I really appreciate the time taking to talk with me. Thanks, Rob. And like again, we'll have a link to the Kickstarter in the pod. Um, thanks again, Rob, and we will be back after this. R-A-G-G-M-O-P-T, Rag Club, do the name, da 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 da
Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Our next guest also has a new book out, one that I have been looking forward to for quite a while. It's another uh, book that harkens back to the glory days of 90s black and white independent comics. And we're talking about The Wretch, and that means we're welcoming back to the podcast Phil Hester. How's it going, Phil? Good. How are you? I am good. I am, like I said, uh, when I was looking back to see when you had been on the pod before, it was, I think it was, it was an episode in the forties. But one of the things we were talking about was this, this omnibus coming out, hopefully in <laughs> right. 2000, in 2017. Right. But it's 2019 and it's here and I'm happy it's here. So I guess we'll just talk about, um, and that's all, that's all my fault. Uh, it's because we were we were gonna do uh, these these two local guys who are young publishers um, called Omaha Bound really wanted to do this wretch omnibus and I was all for it and they really wanted to do it the right way so it was like they were going to reshoot everything from originals and all this stuff and I thought man I don't feel right asking people to like buy a trade of all these stories without giving him something extra. So I thought I better do a new story. And they were like, well, is that going to delay it? And I'm like, no, it'll be like six pages. And then six became eight and eight became 12, you know, 10 and then 12, you know, it just grew and grew. Uh, and of course I had to work it in between all my like paying work. So it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and they had it ready to go. They had it ready to go like in 2016 or 2017. And it was just them waiting for me to finish that last story. But fortunately, it's now here. Now, I remember I'm, uh, people who may have listened to our episode before, some of this stuff may be repeated because I honestly did not go back and listen again to see what we would have talked about before. So I'm sure some right. of this may be repeated from that episode. So if, if anybody's listening that listened back then and can remember what we talked about and are hearing it again, I apologize. But no, I remember they need to hear it again. It's okay, gold. They need, yes. Okay. I remember because uh, I've always been an anthology reader. So yeah. I rem I was buying Negative Burn back when it was being published by Caliber, and so I remember reading the first uh, Rich story. But he he wasn't the wretch yet. But he's a we'll, we'll get, yeah, we'll, he's he's a creep. Well, I was gonna say we'll get to that. But uh, oh, okay. how did how did how did the the wretch knee the creep end up uh, in negative burn way back in 1993? Oh well, I mean, Caliber is one of the first places to hire me in general. Um, Paul Tobin and I did a book there at the dawn of, well, not at the dawn, sort of at the height of the black and white era called Fringe. And um, Joe Pruitt was an editor there. Uh, the, the two main editors that I dealt with were Gary Reed and Joe Pruitt. And Gary Reed was the founder and publisher who just uh, passed away not too long ago. And uh, Joe now uh, is one of the founders of Aftershock Comics. But Joe was, it was Joe's job to sort of staff up, um, their anthology book, Negative Burn, which was famous for spinning out, um, franchises like The Crow and Baker Street. And, uh, uh, they wanted, uh, well, Caliber presents, you know, the, the anthology tradition at Caliber was strong. So like from Caliber presents, he had a lot of franchises spin out 
and they kept that going with negative burn. And uh, so Joe approached me about doing something, and I I just wanted at the time I think I was drawing Swamp Thing already, and I really wanted to do and if not Swamp Thing, other work for higher jobs for like Dark Horse and in DC. And I really wanted to do something that was just like a pure storytelling exercise, like some place where I just didn't have to worry about um, what was expected of me by editors or publishers and just do um, what I felt was best for the story, especially in a visual sense. So I created this character that was just a mute character that had to communicate through his actions. And, um, and the stories just sort of sprung from there, you know, every, um, every little short, uh, wretch story is an exercise in weirdness and in storytelling. And, and that turned out to be super satisfying for me. Yeah. Cause it, it sort of has a feel, I, I, like if you would, were to translate the medium, it's very sort of twilight zoney outer limitsy, I guess. Right. Is sort of a way to think about it. So, you know, it would also fit in, in a way with like the DC, the DC horror anthologies. Like this is something you could yeah. see, you know, in House of Mystery or House of Secrets. Right. And we didn't have like very strong continuity between the stories. And I mean, his costume would change from story to story, and his powers would change from story to story. The only thing that stayed consistent was that he was silent and. Um, that the stories were going to be weird. And sometimes they were horror stories and sometimes they were comedy stories, but they were always going to be weird. Now, yeah, the costume was something I was going to ask about because in the beginning, his costume is pretty, pretty detailed and ornate. He's, you know, he's got hoses and buckles and, and I'm sure after a while you thought, you know, less is more. (laughs) You know, so he well, gets... there's, this, there's an actual story there if you want okay. to hear it. Yes, P- yes, please. Um, about that time, like Madman was blowing up, and uh, I had heard um, through Mike that he had been in contact with Toth, and I was like, "How would you? How did you do that?" And he's just like, "I just wrote him a letter. He's like, he's a lonely old guy, and if you write him, he'll write you back." And I go, and he and he. He drew you a cover and he's like, yeah, he just, he was a fan of the book. So I thought, well, I got to try that. I decided to write Toth a letter in the hopes that I could like beg a cover out of him or a pinup maybe. And I sent him some of those early stories and he, uh, wrote me back a nice letter that was basically like close kid, but no cigar, you know, <laughs> this is cool enough, but it's not cool enough for me. And one of the things that I don't like about it is your character's costume is too busy. Um, he has a good silhouette, so you should accentuate that and not detract from it with this busy costume. And I took that to heart and I designed a, a much simpler costume where he, uh, which was much more of a, a black costume with a silhouette and kind of bandaged arms instead of all the hoses and buckles and straps that he had originally. Yeah, because it's like, you know, if Toth, if Toth gives you an idea, you might as well yeah, you run with it. it. Yeah, you better do it. And uh, and I have to say I'm happier with it. But but I do kind of like the fact that the two costumes kind of represent 
some a little glimmer of continuity with the character. So, you know, when you're seeing like the the complex costume that it's an older story and then they'll just there are little changes to this to the costume that take place over time that kind of reflect continuity for really dedicated readers. Like he has a story where he loses his hand and he winds up replacing it with a child's mitten. And that lasts for a couple issues. And so that so, you know, one of those one of those mitten stories takes place after the other one. Just stories like that. Now, have you ever thought about doing a story in color or that ruin would that ruin? The, we actually, the... we actually did. We did a story and um, uh, it's not presented in the omnibus that way, but we did a story in Action Planet that was in color just because everything in Action for people that don't know, Action Planet was an anthology book that Mike Manley put together in the 90s. And um, it featured his character, Monster Man, and then a bunch of characters from his studio buddies like me and Andy Parks and Brett Blevins and Jerry Ordway, guys like that. Well, you know, this is I, before we go on, this is, of course, uh-huh. my token chance to mention Uncle Slam and Fire Dog. Right. Also, also born of the of that era. But um so we did. I did a red story for that, in that magazine. It was, I think, it was even a magazine-sized Halloween issue or something. It was like an extra. That's the crazy thing about Action on Planet was every issue was a different format. But um, I think it was like an oversized magazine-sized issue, but it was color, and it was the only time the wretch has ever been in color, outside, of course, the covers, which were all in color. Yeah, because I was going to I was going to say because there's a story in here that was like done in grayscale, which I guess is the one that you're yeah. talking about. That's the one we couldn't recover the originals for, and so Omaha Bound, um, Tim and David at Omaha Bound had to shoot um, the actual printed pages from uh, Action Planning and uh, convert them to grayscale and clean them up as best they could because they're old. Like it, you know, like we were working on this. I'm like. Why I should have those around here somewhere. And they're like, yeah, I mean, it's 25 years old. And some of those stories are super old. Now, I know the short list of sort of my favorite rich stories. But I'm wondering, <laughs> when people talk to you about the rich, which one – I was, I want to see if my tastes match up with what you generally hear are people's favorite rich stories. Or, me- or most uh, memorable, depending on how you want to phrase it. I think the thing of it is uh, almost everybody ha- – there's not a huge – I would say there's not really a, a runaway favorite. Like there's no clear plurality favorite story. Um, Rain Babies gets mentioned a lot, um, which is the very f- the first story of the first issue when, when, he, when he spun out of Negative Burn and had his own – title for a while at both caliber and slave labor um people mention the wailing woman a lot um uh bad dog gets brought up um but you know everyone's got everyone's got their favorites i tend to like the one i just finished the most so like my favorite right now is night of the flying telephone poles because that's the new one now, see, it's funny because the ones that I was thinking of you didn't mention, which I guess proves your point. Because I would have said – because if I was to guess, I would have thought Snow would be – Oh, one yeah, Snow. Get... Yeah, oh, yeah, Snow. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, that's the one that gets the most attention from, like, 
people in the industry. Okay. Uh, then, from like, yeah, go ahead. And I was going to say, and the other one, um, I forget what the title is, but the one with the speak and spell. Oh, um, I think it's called, I think it's called the end of the world. But it's a it's a one about the basically the celestials. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, it was sort of like he fights Galactus with a speaking spell. Plus he's got yeah. he's sort of dressed like a like a version of the Marvel Captain. It's part Mar- Marvel Captain Marvel, part Shazam. He's got a right. like a superhero outfit on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I'd say Snow probably Snow. Um, got me. Well, you know what's crazy about the wretch in general is, it got me two animation jobs. Um, I worked very briefly on the the Batman and the Superman shows back in the heyday of those shows. Um, you know, Batman the animated series and the Superman animated series. And at the time, Warner Brothers was so desperate for people that could do. Um, adventure storytelling because everybody in animation at that point is very geared to, to humor and they needed uh, people that understood action and adventure and so they threw the net wide they threw it out to comics and they asked people to send in samples and I had no storyboarding samples but I did have uh, a couple issues of The Wretch so I sent it, I just sent in <laughs> a couple issues of my comic and they hired me. Um, so I guess my, my instinct to do storytelling, you know, put storytelling first paid off. But also Snow, uh, specifically Snow, got me a job on the um, the Spawn show on HBO. And the director of that show, Kevin Altieri, really liked that. Um, really liked that story. And in fact, it's the only pages I ever sold of Wretch pages I sold uh, to Kevin from that story. But I mean, I can see that because also if you look at some of the wretch, the wretch does sort of have that that sort of Deanie Tim look to it, especially sort of Definitely. you know the way the wretch is. Sometimes he looks sort of like the the animated Batman. You know, if you sort of yeah. squint, you know, he looks like the the the, the uh, Tim Batman. Yeah, well, I mean, the goal is to have uh, nowadays when kids see him, they're like. What's wrong with Spider-Man? You know, <laughs> what happened to Spider-Man? But like, um, the idea was to have like a, an instantly readable silhouette, and that's definitely a um, that's definitely one of the tenets of of Bruce Timm's uh, character design style. So that I guess leads me to ask: Is there more wretch in the future? Uh, Tim and Tim and Dave at Omaha Bound would kill me if I said yes, because they waited so long just for this one last story. I guess if there, you know, if there was some sort of uh, miraculous resurgence in wretch um, in the popular culture, and I suddenly have a lot had a lot more free time, I guess because I've written a lot of wretch stories that I haven't drawn. I'd say I've drawn probably sixty percent of the red stories that I've written. So I could always, I could make more any time. So if I won the lottery and didn't have to work, I probably would make more red stories. But um, right now I just can't see a way that I'd fit it into my schedule. Has, 
has anyone ever wanted have you ever had it optioned far enough along that it looked like it might be made into something no no they were very brief and i mean very brief i think liquid television looked at it for a little bit um back during you know when they were making like the max and stuff they were looking for other indecipherably weird comic book characters and <laughs> and so they hit upon the wretch um and right now there's a guy who makes short films in uh short horror films in Spain who's um adapting snow now that we mention it he's adapting snow as a short film right now and he's just doing that as uh, you know as an exercise and we don't expect to make any money for him and I'm just anxious to see what he does with it because for people that did not listen to the other episode cuz your book fire breather ended up as a cartoon on Cartoon Network. Right. So, you know, like you said, and you've worked in animation, so, you know, you've you've been at that, on that end before. Yeah, but as a, as a storyboarder, not as an executive producer. Right, right, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's a, that world is wild. I mean, I, mean, I remember um, Andy Kuhn and I, when we created Fire Breather, and we were dealt with Cartoon Network as it was getting made. And it took something like, I don't know, six years from the option to the production. And we were talking with an executive at Cartoon Network, and we were like, man, that was a crazy marathon. That was a wild, tough battle to get that on the air. And he's like, are you joking? That's the easiest we've ever had anything get on the air. <laughs> so it seemed like a... What seemed like a very like arduous task to us in their world was just like smooth sailing, and so I don't I wouldn't want to try to navigate that that universe again. I mean, if somebody, of course, I, I'm always open to stuff getting optioned and made and and other media, but um, uh, I I try not to get I try to let the comic book speak for itself and not get too hung up on what it turns into when somebody options it. Right. Now, the other thing about uh, the wretch's costume, this, this is this is a very bad segue. But, <laughs> sure. But we talked about how you changed it. We went from the the uh, hoses and buckles and things like that to basically the silhouette with the bandages. Yeah. And that, that, of course, made me think of your longtime love of Ragman. Of course. So I was just wondering, is that just a is are the bandages like a little kind of homage to Ragman? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's why they have like little stitches running through them here and there, because um, I'm I I've loved Ragman forever and will probably never get to work on it, but uh, that's my little nod to it in my character design. And if if the younger people do not, because I don't know when the last time he may have appeared. Oh, uh, he just had a Ray Fox uh, just did a mini series. Oh, okay. A little bit ago, and before that, he was in, he's on he's he's on the Arrow show. Oh, is he? Oh, I don't yeah. I don't watch I don't watch any of the superhero yeah. TV shows. So I mean, that's, that's not my quite. Bad. Yeah, not quite the same, and he's a, definitely a kind of a tertiary character but he's in it and and he was a main character in that shadow pact series that dc did a, you know about 10 years ago oh the one the one that 
Williamson wrote? Uh, or Wellingham wrote? Yeah, Will, uh, Bill yeah. Wellingham wrote. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yep. I remember. I remember that now. But if you still would like the chance to wax nostalgic about why Ragman was so great, please feel free. He was great because of Joe Kubert. Because <laughs> uh, it was a pure expression of Joe Kubert's storytelling style. And it didn't hurt that, you know, uh, Nestor Redondo was there to finish the art and, and make it gorgeous. So, yeah, I, I'm still on a – anytime I see that art come up, I I try to buy it. I think I've got it. I think I've got eight pages of it. I'll see. That was that was that was the next topic on the list once we got through this. But uh, I was going to say I was looking through like a couple of the issues the other day to when I was doing my prep and and I just yeah it's you know it's I mean cause was Joe the editor was he like the whole Shamil on that was he like writer editor and artist? I don't think so. No, okay, he was. Um... I um I think Bob Kaniger wrote those. I'm not okay. sure, but but they were Joe's stories, right? You know? No, because there was there's like a I think it's in the first issue where there's like a full it's like a full page picture. It's like the Ragman's head, but it's broken up in vertical lines. Like you probably mm-hmm. know what I'm thinking. I mean, I was just reading that. And I was like, man. It's like well, that's the cover of the first the cover of the first issues like that. Yeah, but it's just you know. Yeah, there and not, in the in the last issue, there's a story that Joe, Joe does all by himself, like he writes pencils, inks it. That's just yeah. I mean, that's just again. It's it's like you go back and look at the stuff in the seventies, and you know that some of the experimental stuff that people don't necessarily remember that you know guys were yeah. doing back then it's just so it's so great and you know of course Kubert being Kubert yeah his his storytelling is so superb and um it, he would elevate kind of pedestrian material just by the quality of his storytelling which and since you brought it up and it was going to be one of the things I wanted to mention just to tell some stories is you are, you are, if not a, a, an, a comics art kind of sore, you are certainly one who loves to tell, who loves to find pages online and either say, well, look what I just got that I didn't tell anybody <laughs> about because I don't want anybody bidding it up or, well, yeah. look at this. Can you imagine this, what this went for? Or, well, I remember I could have bought this 20 right. years ago for a tenth of the price. But uh, do you have any any sort of really funny art buying stories, either back in oh, the past or, or currently? Yeah, I mean, most of them have to do with n- not buying stuff because I, uh, I thought it was outrageously expensive then. And now it's, you know, 100 times more expensive now. Um, probably the... I don't know if it's the best, but there's a story where um, I was at one of the early Kansas City cons and a dealer had a bunch of Todd McFarlane Spider-Man pages up on, you know, on his, you know, marquee wall, you know, where he had his Golden Age books and mm-hmm. he also had a bunch of McFarlane Spider-Man. And um, 
I was looking at those and I saw behind him just poking out of there. I saw a little glimpse of a Neil Adams Batman page. And he, he, he was selling the McFarlane Spider-Man pages for like 400 bucks, which um, is incredibly cheap, but it did not seem that way in like 1993, you know, right. Or 1994. That was like crazy outrageous. And, I saw the Neil Adams page and I was like, oh man, if those McFarlane pages are 400, then Neil Adams page is going to be 500. But I'm going to ask anyway. And I said, how much is that? Neil, it was a Brave and the Bold with Batman fighting with the Creeper. And uh, he was like, yeah, that is, that is pretty expensive. It's 125. <laughs> and I, 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 I like almost dropped my wallet getting out of my pocket, you know? And uh, I walked away, from, I walked away with that page thinking, Joke's on you, sucker. I just bought the best page you had up there. And, you know, you know, speaking uh, quality-wise, probably I did. But I wish I'd have bought those McFarland pages, too, for $400 because I could retire right now. I remember one of the first years I went to San Diego. So this is like in the mid to late 90s. It was mm. like when I was like pretty much the like the the like four or five years that I went to San Diego was when I had, I was buying art regularly then. And the thing, the thing that I regret now is I was buying a lot of Tony Harris, Starman stuff because I was just so totally in love with Starman because it was like, yeah, well, it was, like I was in grad school and I was studying metatext and referentiality and I was doing a Starman zine that was basically like a an annotated guide with all the references and stuff in there and like you know like um you like, you were thinking about it more than James Robinson was. Well, I don't know about that. But uh <laughs> probably but, you close. Know, no, but but it's cool it's you know like you know they you know they I gave them both a copy and they were really happy and I think either James or Pete like mentioned it in the letter column once. And that was cool. But so I was just buying like really cool pages from that. And so like the one year I bought, like this was probably like halfway through the book's run. And cause Tony was still on it. And like, I bought the, I don't remember. Cause like a couple pages, I think are sort of still famous. Like there's, I bought the page. That was a full-page picture of their mother in one of the episodes where it's Jack and his brother, the one when they're, like, on the pirate ship. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he says, I got to go, but there's someone else who wants to see you. And then you turn the page, and it's, like, a full-page picture of their mother. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, I had that page, and I had a couple other – one of the pages that had Alan Scott in it where he's flying down, where he's talking about, you know, like, him being, like, one of the Mercury 7 – or something like that. I had that. But okay. the thing is, now it's like, at the time, my choice was, I had like, there was like three pages that I wanted to buy. Or, I could have like, bought a cover. Yeah. But I'm like, you know, well, three pages, one page. So it's like, in, in hindsight, and I think it ended up not actually being the cover. It was supposed to be the cover. But, it was the one, it was the Talking with David issue where he meets like, all of the dead JSA and then the, it ended up being, I think, the the last page splash page where they're all sitting around the dinner table together, 
like toasting uh-huh. each other, and it was like, but that was like fifteen hundred or something uh-huh. like that. And so, like, I bought like three, like three four hundred dollar pages or something like that. Right. Because right. I'm like, I'm like, well, I got three pages instead of one. You know, yeah. and in hindsight, I'm like, you know, probably should have gotten the big oh, giant yeah. splash page with all the, you know, yeah, and if I. Yeah, it's sort of like if I I buy pages that mean something to me or that that feature artists I care about or they have neat storytelling on them. Uh, if I were being completely mercenary about it, I should have been buying like every crappy cover I could lay my hands on, because just covers in themselves are blowing up right now, and they don't have to be good. This have to be covers, and the older the better. And I should have been buying, you know whatever I could get my hands on instead of trying to get like, you know, a Frank Miller Daredevil page. I should have been buying like team America covers. <laughs> but yeah, I think the only cover that I have, cause I've like, I've sold off most everything over the years, I think just cause it's like, you know, well, there's a month where I could use a couple extra hundred dollars. So let me get rid, you know, and again, yeah. I had like eight star man pages. So it's like, do I really need eight star man pages? So, like, I think I have, like, one left of that, and then, like, the only thing for, and I sold, like, I had, speaking of negative burn, I got, because I was good friends with Bendis, like, before he became a big star. Right. And I had bought, because we had brought him out here a couple times to do conventions and stuff, and I bought, like, a bunch of his pages, including, you know, like, it's funny, there's, like, he had pages from, like, Jinx that on the back were like old practice pages. So I have like a page, I had a page of Jinx and on the back was like him drawing a Gifford DeMathis Justice League story, like oh, his cool. own. So yeah, like Earth. there's a page on the back that has like Guy Gardner and like fire and ice on it, which is just funny. Cool. But I bought from him like all eight pages of a story he did in Negative Burn that Ellis wrote. Oh, that's cool. And then like the one year when I was going to San Diego, like that Ellis actually went, like I waited in line and I was like, you know, everybody had their, their X-Men books or their, or their, I think I was thinking that year or, you know, their issues of authority or whatever. And so I got up there and I was like, you know, I said, um, I'm like, you know, I got these from Brian. I said, would you mind? And it it was like he was thrilled just to see something different. Yeah. So oh, like that I, happens. Yeah. So yeah. so I got him to sign, you know, like all eight pages of that story. So I ended up when I sold that, it's like, I mean, I I think I sold it to like one of the Bendis super fans. You know, back right. when Bendis still had his board. But yeah, I mean, I just saw it's an eight page complete story now. Now, in hindsight, it's like, here's an eight-page complete story written by Warren Ellis and drawn by Bendis. It's like, I'd hate to think what that would probably be worth now. Well, you never but, know. You know. But, you know. But enjoyed the, it while you had yeah, it. Yeah, but, like, the one thing that I that I will not get rid of because it, it combines so many of my loves is, I'm sure I've told you this before, but I have the cover, and it's a cover. It's the last issue of Secret Society of Supervillains. Uh-huh. But, you know, and so it's so it's a 70s DC book. It's like 
four super you know four earth 2 supervillains on the cover yeah the only problem i'm sure you can relate to this the only problem is at some point and i don't know where it is anymore but they had glued the dc bullet oh on it. yeah yeah and so that fell off at some point well you can get that restored but i mean but I, but, but that's a page i'm never going to sell so i don't right. care that i lost it right because that's my that's like the one thing that you know, if I look at like all of my stuff, you know, like the 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 burning the burning house things, you know, it's like that. If I had to save one page of art, it would be that. And if I had to save like one comic, even though it's a horrible, it's in horrible, horrible condition, and it doesn't have a back cover, but you know, I have a copy of All Star Thirty Seven, which is the first Injustice Society. Oh well, that's cool. That I paid like forty five dollars for. Right. But you know, it's the first appearance of the Injustice Society, and I'm a mark for, for Golden Age villains and Silver Age villains. Right. So that's the thing I'm not going to get rid of. But I mean, I'm sure if I pressed you for like what's, which if you had to save one page from your, from being stolen by aliens, do you know what? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's um, uh, I have a page from the early Frank Miller Daredevil issue where he fights the Hulk. And it's um, it's the issue of the Hulk, issue of Daredevil that I was reading when I was a kid that sort of galvanized my desire to be... Well, I mean, I always wanted to be... I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist, you know? But that kind of helped me decide what kind of cartoonist I was going to be. And I was like, I'm going to draw a comic someday when I was like 10. I was saying that. But when I was 13 and I saw that story, I was like, I do comics like this, you know? And so it really kickstarted me to be, to be a comic book artist. And then when I was doing Swamp Thing and I got my first, you know, like real DC check, I was at a Chicago Comic Con and I, I saw a page from that story and I was like, I'm all over that. So that would be the page. Yes. That's funny. If I could find a page from like that book that did it for me as a kid, because I now realize because there were like two really old comics that I had when I was like five or six that somebody had given me or I ended up with. But like one is it's like Avengers like 21 or 22 because it's like the one with the one with the original the the original Power Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's so like a Don Heck issue. But yeah, the other one and I don't remember who drew it, but it's an issue of Wonder Woman from the 60s. But it's when it's the first appearance of Egg Foo. Oh, that's probably a Mike Sikowski issue. So, so it's like you know, I look back and I'm like, what crystallized my immediate love of horrible, cheesy C-list villains? <laughs> like, why every year for for 100 Kirby's did you have to draw some variation of Pastepot Pete for me? Yeah, you. You know that's. That's probably the reason. And again, that that Avengers issue too, you know, has I don't remember if it has just Power Man or if it has the Masters of Evil in it too. But you know, it's like all of these early issues like cemented my love of you know why do I love the Flash's Rogues Gallery and why do I you know why you know why do I like you know Craven more than I like the Grieve Goblin or Doctor Octopus because he's like you know the campy B list villain, not the main villain. Yeah, he's got a little element of, you know, he's kind of ludicrous. 
But I always say, you know, I'm one of these people. It's always like, you know, if the right person wrote Pace Pot Pete correctly, quote unquote, you know what I mean? He would not be, yeah. he would not be a, you know, because in his, you know, his couple, you know, his first couple appearances is like, you know, he, there's a, there's an episode where he very well had Captain America beat dead to rights until Sharon Rogers showed up and, or Sharon Carter showed up and sort of freed Cap and then Cap beat him. But, you know, he had right. him one and, you know, the Avengers were in, I think it's like issue 10 when they're fighting Zemo and like Zemo had this adhesive and they couldn't figure out how to, how to, uh, how to beat it. They actually went to prison and found Pete and like Pete figured out a way to, right. to you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, pace pot piece like that. I think Batrock's like that, you know, Batrock's a guy, I think when he's written with dignity, he's a great villain. Yeah. You know I mean? I'm sure, you know, I mean like this, when you guys did, when you guys were doing Swamp Thing, there's a bunch of, you oh, know. Oh, yeah, Mark loved all that sort of stuff. Yeah, because you know? yeah, I was talking to him back then, and I remember he told me that he had pitched something to DC that was going to be like the secret history of the secret society of supervillains, which I was all over. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, I realized that's probably what turned into Wanted. Oh, Definitely. It's definitely wanted. Yeah. You know, no, he, I, pitched, he pitched all sorts. He loved DC. He loves, well, he probably still does. He loves DC lore. And it was a constant battle working on that book because he always wanted to pull in unused superheroes and use them in the book. And at the time, there was like this, this bright line between DCU and Vertigo that couldn't be crossed. And he was always, he was always knocking heads with Karen Berger about like what he could drag into Swamp Thing and what he could. So if it was something that was complete, incomplete disuse, like Nightmaster, we could get away with it. But if it was something like Spectre, no, you'd have to make up a, you know, a, uh, an analog character like the word. Yeah. Or if it, uh, like we had an issue that was all going to be all about Alan Scott. And, um, at the last minute, we had to change it to a character called the Black Box. But it's like, fun. But it's funny that you couldn't use Alan Scott, but you could use Grundy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I'm glad I didn't have to fight those battles. I just drew what they put in front of me. Well, yeah, you, it was. It well, was a constant, constant war. Well, I mean, we've talked about <laughs> this before, but you know, when, when Gr the year that Grant and Mark were at San Diego, it's like when I was getting <laughs> when I was getting sketches. It's like. You know, Mark did Mark did a Sargon sketch for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know that I use as my my avatar sometimes, and and Morrison did a Psycho Pirate sketch. Yeah. Most like writers it, are frustrated. Most writers are frustrated artists. Well, it's funny. For a long time, I don't know if he still does, but He's... standard that people would ask him to sketch. I think I think he now does like he used to. But back then, because he used to be local, so he would always come. You know, like I would see him at the store every so often, and he would do appearances with us. But his go-to sketch, he would draw Prody. <laughs> well, of course. Which again is is fits way to a T. But I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a funny gag, but it's also like, well, yeah, of course that's who wait. You know, or he would draw like an obscure Superman character from like the fifties that nobody ever heard of. But a tertiary Legion character fits. 
really well. And yeah, and talking oh. about and, and talking about art, of course, we've had this long running discussion how there's a page on eBay that's that's uh one of your pages that has Sargon in it. And I'm just like <laughs> Phil, I really want this and then I tell you how much it is and you're like that's too much. Yeah. And like I'm just I know it's I think the last time I looked it's it's still that price and it was on sale for a while. Like it went down Yes, I think somebody's counting on there's a, you know there's a certain thing that happens when a page just gets old enough that it starts to be worth more. Um you're starting to see that with a lot of 70s stuff that was previously seen as not super desirable or disposable and it's it's suddenly creeping up in price just because it's old. So maybe whoever has that Sargon page is hoping uh, <laughs> that one day we'll be old enough to be worth money. I'm now just hoping that somebody out there, I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could find another one. Cause, oh, I mean, I'm sure. Because he was in what, three issues, so it's not like, you know, he only appeared once. So, you know, I'm yeah. like, like, I'm sure I'll I'll get one eventually. That's my that's my goal. Plus, you know, I would love to have a Swamp Thing page from the, you know because we talked about it last time that I how much I loved that run on the book. And again, because as we've talked about, you know, the use of obscure, you know, Sargon and Nightmaster yeah. and that whole that whole arc that River Run arc was just so you know at the time you know the multiverse was out of favor you know yeah. for him to come up with an arc where we got to one of the old pre-crisis worlds was just great and then there's that that great issue with Chester oh yeah that Kurt Swan drew right is it's so it's so strange I, I mean strange in a good way and I got way. to meet I got to meet Kurt at about that time and um I wound up and I'm, I wasn't scheduled to do anything for that issue, but I was Stuart Moore was the editor and I, and I called him and I said, look, I need to be in the same comic as Kurt Swan. Let me do something. And they let me draw like a frontispiece for that issue. Um, kind of like a framing sequence for right. the story. And so I could say I was in the same comic as Kurt Swan, but then I wound up buying the cover for that issue. <laughs> That's great. So I actually I own a cover from my Swamp Thing run, but it's an issue I didn't draw. That's great. So uh, we've now entered plug mode. So in addition to the omnibus, which is probably available from yeah, Omaha you can go Bound to or OmahaBound.com, yeah. Um, you I believe that you had a trade drop this very day. If today, yeah, I remember. The first volume of Stronghold that right. you that you did with Ryan Kelly just came out today. Yep, it's a book we did at Aftershock um, a little bit earlier in the year, and the collect the collection of the first five issues, which is a a distinct and cohesive story um, with a beginning, middle, and end, uh, dropped today. And it's uh, for people that don't know about the book, it's it's sort of um it's a story about a I mean, comics is full of these kind of stories where um, an everyday person discovers they have this like uh, secret destiny and secret powers and 
um, a, like a hero's path laid out in front of them. And we wanted to destroy like that, but where uh, it was better for that character to never know what that secret destiny was. <laughs> it's, in fact, it's better for the whole world not to him, for him to go down that um, down that hero's journey and figure out what he really is. So it, it sort of a it sort of turns all those kind of the hero discovered um, tropes on their head. Cool. And the other thing that I know is I think still being solicited. This month, I think that is coming out later in the year is you are drawing Family Tree that is being written by Jeff Lemire. Yeah, um, that'll come out November 13th. And it's sort of if it's right in with basically if it's right in with both uh, themes that are that are prevalent in both Jeff's and my work, which is it's kind of a small town horror story that's family centered um, that kind of quickly spins out into something broader and more apocalyptic. So um, if, if you're a fan of Jeff or me, um, you, you will be, it'll be right in your wheelhouse. That's cool. Yeah. Jeff is somebody I'd love to like get on the pot at some point because he's too busy. dude. Yeah. I was going to say, but uh, I mean, even back like his, his older stuff, but, but Black Hammer is such a great book. Isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, and it's funny now that we've got this, that they're doing this crossover now with, with Justice League yeah. where, you know, like we've been talking about, I'm a sucker for those sort of crisis things where guys meet their doppelgangers. And so, right. yeah, this is, this, I mean, I, I was a fan before, but I really, you know, I mean, I love Sweet Tooth and Excess County and everything. Well, yeah, he does. He's done so much stuff. It's hard to remember to list everything. Yeah, he's a he's a constant, like uh, he's writing a million things, but every, even though he's writing a bunch of stuff, he's always working on a graphic novel that he's writing and drawing. You know, so he's always got new stuff coming out. And I wish I, I wish I had that same sort of like, um, uh, I don't. It's not work ethic because I work all the time too. But there's just sort of. He doesn't second guess himself, you know, and I do all the time. So like when Jeff gets an idea that he wants to do, he like just does it, you know. And when I get an idea I want to do, I fiddle with it for like six years <laughs> you know, before I, before I get it out. And uh, Jeff just produces like he doesn't he doesn't think twice about it. That's great. Well, Phil, I want to thank you again very much for your time tonight. It was my pleasure, of course. And I'm sure you will be on again, perhaps to tell the same stories that you've told before. But they're great stories, so I don't mind hearing them again. I'm sure we're going to keep telling. We're going to keep telling people until people remember. I'll say, and I'm sure by the next time we talk, you will have acquired some really neat, obscure uh, art page that just makes me go, "Wow!" Like, "Wow!" and that wasn't so much that I probably couldn't have maybe, you know, it's, there's, you know, there's a couple things that it's like, I wouldn't even want to fathom like how much, if they even exist now, like, like how much is a, like how much would a page from like Pete Morris's Thunderbolt be, you know, like how many insane thousands of dollars is that? Or, 
like an obscure 70s DC horror book or like even like a Western book. You know what I mean? It's just like. Yeah, that's sort of the last of the 70s stuff. The stuff from the horror anthologies and the Western books are sort of the last remaining affordable stuff. Um, superhero stuff from the 70s is out of control. But you can still land some like like an ER cruise page from like Witching Hour or something. You can still get pretty reasonably. I think the last thing that I – well, the last thing I actually bought was um, a Giffen thing from – do you remember the, the when they were doing JLI, and there was yeah. an there, there was an annual went around and visited all of the embassies around the world, and they had sort of parody characters in them. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Right, and so they go, they went to England, and it's like the people that run the English embassy are like a parody of Basil Fawlty, right, and and Manuel and his wife. Well, mm-hmm. in that issue, they did who's who pages for those characters. Oh yeah. And I got the like bezel faulty page. The, like, <laughs> and it was, and it was like, it was like under a hundred bucks. Yeah. And I'm like, how can, how can something from the given to math is justice league, even if it's like, you know, like only like half a page be that cheap. That's crazy. That's but always was, the best. When you, when you get a bargain like that, it's always awesome. Yeah, it was like that, and I think the you know, the last thing I bought before that that was like a real page was it was like from it was from like a Charlton a Charlton girls comic mm-hmm. from this, and it was like a like it was from like a an Ask Heloise page, like it oh, was yeah. like one of their one of their teen girl characters like giving dating advice. Oh right, those are cool. Yeah, that you know what? Yeah, that's blowing up now. Like all the all that romance stuff is starting yeah. to blow. Up. But that's I mean, but that, I mean that's the kind of thing where when I look, it's like one, it's kind of kitschy, cool, and two, that stuff's yeah going to be a lot cheaper than trying to buy. Yeah, even like some sort of, you know, I was going to say like some really weird '70s DC thing, but then I realized like a lot of that weird '70s DC stuff was actually like drawn by like big name I was I was about to say like a page from Stalker and then I realized oh wait yeah that's Dick Van Wood I was like that's a simple yeah but like but like I don't remember like who drew the Avenger or Justice Incorporated whichever they called it the, oh the yeah 70, I mean I know like yeah, Cooper did the covers but I like I don't remember Kirby drew the guts I would yeah you know, it's it's crazy. Like the stuff that you think of as forgettable when you're a kid, because it's not a mainline book. Uh, when you get older, you, you learn to appreciate. And I mean, cause I mean, those are like the books that are even hard to find now, let alone, I imagine trying to find the art. Cause you know, when I was buying, you know, going to cons and looking for stuff, like I was down to, like I had bought like all of the seventies DC, you know I mean? It's like, I had the Avenger and I had Stalker and I had, you know, Freedom Fighters and Secret Society. And then you're starting to run in, you know, or issues of first issue special. Yeah. And it's like, even then you're like, you know, then you've got, yeah, you had to go down to like Western or horror or humor 
or you know it's like i have no idea what kind of you know like stuff from you know like sugar and spike or any of that kind of stuff i mean even yeah, finding that's... the even finding comics yeah oh yeah it's cuz i remember i remember when i was trying to collect all the dc digests it's like yeah the <laughs> ones that you just couldn't find were you know the sugar and spike and like the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer one? It's like yeah, yeah, it's yeah like, you can find all the yeah. Batman and Super ones, no problem. Yeah, that's sort of the way it works. Like for something to become truly collectible, it has to be something that nobody gives a crap about for a while. Well, that's like when I worked in a store and we had to explain to people. It's like, you know, the reason stuff is collectible is because it was thrown. It was thrown away at the yeah. time, and there aren't many left. It's like, you know, yeah. I'm sorry. I realize you bought three copies of Superman 75 thinking they'd be worth something, but every comic store in America has a case of them. Yeah. It's, you know it's, I mean? like, it's, it's like that Jim Lee X-Men number one. It's like, look, there are seven million of these. But it, by definition, can never be rare. You know? It's that, not happening. Oh, that reminds me. We'll tie this all together. There used to be a store... I don't know if it's still around um, where near our store, which is funny because Delaware used to have seven comic book stores, which is funny if you think, you know, because it's Delaware. Yeah. But one of the, one of the guys who owned one of the stores that wasn't ours, he got in the paper because he bought the, he bought the art for the entire issue of I want to say like X Force number one, or uh-huh. something, something to that effect. And so at the time, and this is like in the late nineties or mid nineties, mm-hmm. I want to say it was something like thirty grand for the entire right. book. Right. And you wonder, it's like I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure he probably if, if he, yeah, if he held if on he to it, let it go now. The, great investment. But. You know, of course, for being comic book snobs, it's like, you know, paying thirty, thirty thousand dollars for, you know, like an issue of Rob Liefeld art. You know, it's like I could take that. You know, like if I could have taken that thirty thousand dollars and bought like an entire Alex. issue, of, or like an entire <laughs> art Alex. issue of art of Sergeant Rock. You know what I mean? Or or some Alex Raymond uh, Flash Gordon Sundays. You know, to each their own. Yeah. You're just not a man of the people, Mark. No, I, I learned that along. The, like I said, I would rather have, you know, one of your pages with Sargon or Nightmaster than, right. you know, than an X-Men page. But right. that's the way it goes. You're a weirdo. Yep. But thanks. Thanks again, Phil. And like I said, I'm sure on you'll that. be. I'm sure you'll. On, yeah, that, no. note. on that note. Um. <laughs> Yes, we'll we'll talk again. I'm sure we'll be back oh, yeah. at some point to tell art stories or comic stories or whatever. So thanks everybody for listening. Um, just want to throw this in. Today was the start of hockey season, and I had been working on some hockey guests, but we didn't get them in time. So hopefully that will be soon. Um, we had a Canadian. That's as, that's as close as we got to having a preview of the NHL season. Well, who did you have? Um, I know a couple of people. I don't want to. I don't want to say. Oh, okay. Never mind. But uh, I don't know the show. Yeah, no. If 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 you will go back, look through the the back catalog of episodes. There've been 
um, a couple of people who have been on a couple of times to talk puck. It probably would have been one of them had we gotten our schedules oh. lined up, and hopefully it will be one of them shortly. And hopefully we'll be having another comics pod in the near future to talk about uh, one of the big things that's going on in comics right now. But again, I don't want to spoil it, but look for that hopefully soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be with you next time. Thank <laughs> you.